Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones. Wait just a minute. Stop the show. This is our 50th episode and our one-year anniversary here on the Need to Know podcast. So, might be time for a little bit of celebration music. So in this episode, we thought we would take a look back. I thought we would go back to some of the guests who had the most popular episodes and talk to them about what we saw last year and what we see this year now that the world has changed so much. Matt Rajansky was the first interview that I ever did for the Need to Know podcast, and this was a year ago, hard to believe, and it just feels like the world has changed so much. And here's a little bit of what we talked about during that conversation. So there's there's an enormous amount we need to know to ensure that the ways in which Russia matter uh, don't get reduced to sort of memes, you know, little bullet points, or or I think most dangerous of all, um, kind of black and whites, right? There's sort of the easy answers. Well, clearly the right thing to do is X, and anyone who opposes that is not loyal, right? Or anybody you know who opposes that doesn't understand the the framework that uh, has sort of seized my thinking on U.S. Russia relations over the last several years. In the first instance, is a security dilemma, which basically means. It seems that neither side can feel secure, can feel that it's in a good position um, without doing things that make the other side feel more insecure. And I think what underpins that on a, on a deeper, almost human psychological level is what I call fundamental attribution error. Now, that's a social psychological term. It's been around for 50 years. Basically, we explain our own behavior based on circumstance. You know, we're, we're just reacting to the world as it is around us, but we're fundamentally good people and we're trying to do good things. We tend to explain the behavior of others by their nature. So if they do bad things or if they do things that look wrong to us, they're doing them because that's just who they are. So Matt, welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. And how do you think that this world has changed here in the last year as regards U.S.-Russia relations? Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show, Aaron. It's very cool that this is your 50th episode and uh, a year of the podcast. I remember when this was just a a notion in your brain and you came to see me in my office back when we could do that sort of thing uh, without wearing Stormtrooper Darth Vader masks, um, which I assume was what we're going to do at the Wilson Center going forward. I at least spoke for that. Um, And uh, we did talk about what was uh, in some ways a different world. It was a world in which Uh, Russia and China were somehow emerging to be understood as the great power competitors of the United States and the dysfunctions in U.S. politics and in the U.S.-Russia relationship were preventing the United States from doing essentially what many people, possibly including President Trump, wanted to do, uh, which is try to repair relations with Russia in order to kind of pivot and confront China. That that basically was uh, appearing impossible. Now, here we are a year later, um, you know, China has suffered a major blow, but you could argue has also delivered a, a kind of major blow to the international system um, in the form of the COVID crisis and, and appears to be recovering faster. Russia and the United States are amazingly similarly situated. I mean, uh, number one and number two in the world in terms of number of total infections, the death rate as reported in Russia is considerably lower than in the United States. Um, 
that's kind of an outlier and, and it seems inaccurate on a lot of levels. Um, the only sense in which it might be accurate is just the, the mere fact that Russian life expectancy is so low relative to other developed economies. Uh, so the most vulnerable populations, that's people over 65 years old, they're just smaller in Russia relative to the population overall. So it may be that they're losing fewer people, but even that I'm not sure about. Um, so it's a very similar world for Russia and the United States where we're both kind of reeling from this COVID crisis and looking at the Chinese who seem to be getting their sea legs now uh, and, and wondering, is this it? Is this a watershed moment where we move into the Chinese dominated world order? I think that's a big concern for both Moscow and Washington. Well, you know, a year ago, it seems like the, the political situation, everyone was talking about Russia. And this is pre-impeachment. Everybody's looking ahead to the 2020 elections and whether or not there would be more Russian interference or any Russian interference. Now, with COVID-19, Russia has its own problems domestically to deal with. And we are kind of focused a bit more inwardly and... When it comes to foreign affairs, it seems like China is taking the place where Russia was a year ago. What, what say you to that? Yes, that seems to be the case. Uh, it certainly is the case in terms of the, the big picture geopolitical rivalry. But I think where it's not the case is psychologically. I think a lot of Americans, including very likely um, the people who will be in, in, in prominent positions featured, let's say, during the campaign, uh, and, and during and after the election, I think there's a real preoccupation with Russia still. It'll be the Russian interference story, uh, some of which has a lot of reality to it, uh, other parts of which are, are overwhelmingly about American domestic politics and get kind of blown way out of proportion, which ironically may be exactly what the Russians want. Um, and, and some of it will be this unbelievable, what I call kind of the, the broken clock narrative, the recurring predictions that, you know, Russia is about to fall, that the authoritarian, abusive Putin regime is so brittle and fragile that it's coming down. And uh, unfortunately, a piece like this uh, recently came out of the Biden campaign, I think it was in, in foreign affairs, you know, saying that the Putin system, uh, its cracks are being revealed by COVID. Now, all that might be true. Uh, but it reminds me of the line from Mark Twain, you know, rumors of my demise are greatly exaggerated. The man's been around for 20 years. He's still relatively young and in good health. And, you know, by almost any measure, Russia has got plenty of reserves and is doing awfully well. Now, that said, like us, they got high unemployment. They got people dying. Um, so there are big challenges. But the idea that uh, we can go back to kind of the 1990s end of history stuff, right, where, you know, a Russian dictatorship cannot possibly last. Eventually, they'll come back to the fold and join the United States and Europe. I mean, if that's what we're going to see, uh, you know, as, as the discourse coming out of this election, it will feel like people just missed the point. So as somebody who's watched this, what in this changing world should we be watching out for with the relationship with Russia? What are the things that you would, would want to stick a pin in for a policymaker? Yeah, uh, that is really the only question that matters uh, for policymakers. And I think, you know, the issue number one on the agenda has got to be the nuclear relationship because of the risk of unintended escalation. When U.S. and Russian forces come into contact or there are near miss incidents, all of which happen all the time, each time you, you roll the dice, uh, that conflict is going to escalate. And, and when you have the world's two biggest nuclear powers with over 90 percent of the world's nuclear weapons, the risk of destroying life as we know it is is real 
it may not be big, but the significance of it is so big, you've got to make that priority number one. And unfortunately, the arms control agenda is just totally off the rails. We barely have uh, a surviving arms control regime, and it's set to expire. The New START Treaty is uh, by uh, less than uh, half a year from now, January of next year. So that's got to be issue number one. Uh, issue number two, you know, I think very clearly is European security writ large. We got a war in Ukraine, right? A an actual shooting war in which Russia is a conflicting party and the United States is very clearly backing Ukraine as, as a proxy. So that, that basically brings, you know, Moscow and Washington to within a hair's breadth of being at war with one another. Um, that's very, very dangerous. Got to address that situation. Um, and then third, I would say that there's this broad set of kind of new and emerging technology issues, one of which no one will dispute today, but, but you know, five years ago, people might have just ignored, is the issue of cyber. You know, the Russians have showcased their capability to make our lives very, very complicated uh, through various kinds of cyber and information uh, interventions in our politics, in our society. They're not going to stop. And the idea that we can just deter them by threatening to do the same thing to them when they don't have the same kind of open society and they don't have the same kind of vulnerabilities, or that we can just punish them and hope that our punishment will cause them to realize the error of their ways, this is, this is naive in the extreme. Uh, the only way that you deal with a conflicting scenario like that, where both sides have the ability to inflict harm on one another, um, is you establish a basic level of deterrence and then you negotiate. And I think we need to talk very seriously with the Russians based on their capabilities and our capabilities about what we consider permissible and what we consider impermissible. Because there's going to be a certain level of this. It's going to continue forever. If we, as long as we have Facebook, there's going to be a certain level of trolling and, you know, just sort of uh, playing up divisions and playing up negativity about one another. But we got to draw a line somewhere. And, and certainly it has to do with U.S. elections and critical infrastructure and stealing secrets and things like that. Matt Rajansky, the director of the Kennan Institute. Matt, I want to thank you for coming back on. Thank you for creating an interview that generated one of the most popular episodes that we have done. And thank you also for the work that you do and all of the scholars and associates that have uh, been allowed to come on the show in the last year too. I think the Kennan Institute has done a great job representing itself on this show over the last 50 episodes. Hey, thank you, Aaron. And congratulations again on the anniversary. This is very cool. Keep it going for another year. My next guest on our retrospective is Ann Kokus, who is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Virginia and a Kluge fellow at the Library of Congress. And she has joined us twice for two very popular episodes on the Need to Know podcast. One was our second interview ever, uh, in which we talked about how China influences Hollywood. And then a little bit later on, uh, we were talking about how China influences media, TV, and sports coverage. So, let's take a look back here real quick. Cast out a year or two. When we try to do something, obviously, China can make a move, too. And so do you think that's going to go into the film industry as well? Yeah, I think it already has. I mean, it's impacted the ways in which 
Hollywood studio um, in which Hollywood studio films have been invested in by um, Chinese filmmakers that that has cooled down a little bit over the past year. It's been more difficult for Hollywood for Hollywood studios to continue their collaborations with China. Um, we saw the divestment uh, by DreamWorks Animation of Oriental DreamWorks, which was a, a studio collaboration that they had in China um, with a, with a conglomerate of Chinese of Chinese companies. So we're definitely seeing a slowdown as a result of the trade war. Hmm. And welcome back. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's such a pleasure to be back. So you were our guest on two very popular episodes that we did. One was actually our second ever Need to Know podcast interview, which turned out to be the episode, Is China Dictating What We See at the Movies? And then we had you back a few months later uh, when things were going on with NBA protests about Hong Kong and China's uh interest in regulating sports media and kind of regulating speech there. So we had you back on for that. So much has changed, though, in the time since we last talked to you. I mean, just a few months ago, we were talking about a possible new trade deal with China. Uh, there was a lot of hopeful rhetoric about China. Now that's just that script is completely flipped. So what is the perspective that you're seeing in the media landscape when it comes to China, uh, when it comes to movies, TV, and how China is using its soft power? Well, there's been a dramatic transformation in the Sino, in the relationship between the Sino-US film industries. First of all, the Chinese film theaters have been closed since January 28th. The majority of them have been closed and are likely not to open until January 10th. In the United States, we see something similar with the closures occurring in mid-March. Um, and it be, it's very unclear when either country will go back to watching movies in a theater, when anyone in, in the world will, will want to do that activity again. So that's a, a major transformation for the global film industry. And we're seeing a huge shift to digital. Now, at the same time that all of this is happening, there's been a, a ratcheting up of uh, tension in the U.S.-China film relationship. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz has an, introduced a bill prohibiting any U.S. government cooperation with Chinese filmmakers. This is largely in response to the film Top Gun that where Tom Cruise's jacket had a Taiwan flag on it that was changed by Chinese regulators. We talked about that previously. Uh, now, we also see at the same time U.S. companies becoming ever more engaged with Chinese, with Chinese firms. So, for example... Um, um, a real a senior leader at Disney has just moved over to become the CEO of TikTok, the Chinese-owned social media platform that incidentally has also become a major feature of our COVID experience. I mean, the, the videos of grandparents and grandchildren dancing on TikTok are really what are getting a lot of people through their days. So this becomes a very challenging policy decision-making. So, so really, Hollywood has changed dramatically. We're not going to the movie theaters. And so what China is having to deal with as far as their influence on American movies, American production, uh, would obviously change with it. Since there is so much pushback on China, not only on, you know, we, we you know, talking about Huawei and TikTok and some of these uh, social media and 5G technology issues, but now there's pushback on their coronavirus response. And it seems like just a, a lot more light is being shined on how China 
governs itself. China's response in the past has often been to try to exert more influence outside of its borders and just try to kind of project that soft power. What's their plan right now? Well, I think it's important to look not just at what's happening in China, but how China and the United States are interacting. So with regard to healthcare governance, we saw a really significant cover-up of the expansion of the coronavirus in China that we're now that we're now detecting, um, and that was a huge problem. However, China has ramped up extensive testing and um, and quarantines to a degree that would make you know most Americans' heads explode in terms of the the limitations on freedom of movement. Now. Um, what that has created is a situation where the coronavirus is more under control in China than it is in the United States. And we've also seen the U.S. respond in such a way that there's a lot of tension and a lot of blaming of, the, of China's response and China's culpability for the expansion of this disease around the world, which is, which is important to acknowledge. But it's also being used as a distraction technique from the public health disaster that's occurring here in the United States with over 100,000 people dead. So on one hand, we see China attempting to exert its influence, maybe doing mass diplomacy in places like Israel and Italy, shaping WHO discourse. But the U.S. is also pulling back from some of these types of engagements. So removing funding from the WHO, as well as kind of not collaborating as closely with our partners and allies on this major global public health crisis as we could in order to push back against China's influence in those same places. So what do you see, you know, as we try to recover from this crisis, what do you see the Chinese kind of what's their next move, I guess, if the world has changed and there's a lot of more pressure on them, um, certainly from other countries like the United States, but also probably at the multinational level, too, because we see a lot of skepticism from the European Union. The WHO, I think, feels like they need to respond to this you know, accusation that they were led in by China. What's China's game plan as we and, and also I would like to say they did they tried to do a victory lap uh, and that kind of backfired on them too. So <laughs> what's their what's their plan now? Well, I think a lot of what happens not just in China but in Europe and in the United States and in Australia and New Zealand and Japan will depend on how effectively each country and each region is able to contain the coronavirus. So if China is able to effectively contain the coronavirus much more quickly than other countries, which is still a question mark. I mean, there was just a lockdown in Northeastern China um, last week. So uh, that I believe is still going on. So it's not, it's not contained there by any means. Um, but if China is able to, to contain its, the growth of the coronavirus, or develop a vaccine earlier, um, then they would start to be able to exert influence economically as well as politically by presenting an alternative model. Now, if that doesn't happen, that 
And there, there continue to be outbreaks in China, which is also very possible because it's a highly dense pop. It's, highly, it's a highly dense country. Um, there, it's an aging population, and it's a. There are a lot of people. So containing a coronavirus outbreak in China is a huge, very challenging task. So whether or not that happens will really determine the the capacity that they have for a response. One thing that's noteworthy is that there weren't any. Economic growth predictions released at the most recent meeting of Chinese leaders this past week. So there were some employment numbers, like target employment numbers, released, but not any economic growth numbers. So that suggests a real concern about what the implications are for this, for for the economy and for the society. So as a media studies professor and somebody who's written a book, Hollywood Made in China. What are you watching for in all of this? What are what are the markers that you're looking for and that you're you've got your eye on right now? So there are a couple of things that that I've been really interested in. One is the expansion of Chinese media and technology platforms globally. So we saw that when in connection to COVID, uh, several Chinese platforms have released tracking apps for tracking health. Uh, if, these, if these apps, which are integrated with Chinese social platforms like WeChat, become very popular in China and then are expanded globally, this presents a really significant opportunity both for economic growth within the Chinese media and technology landscape, as well as for, as well as an opportunity for Chinese government influence. So that is a a big, a big interesting global challenge that we'll see. I'm also interested in what's going on in the film industry because of my previous book. Uh, and what we've seen is guidelines released by the Chinese government for uh, specifically for films that promote social stability and promote um, hygiene and a pandemic response. Now, what we saw in the past 10 years was the growth of, the, of a Chinese film and media industry that was able to not necessarily push back against the government, but to be able to operate in parallel in some ways. Uh, but because the industry has been completely crushed by, the, by essentially five months of no filming and no distribution, no theatrical distribution, the government, the government impact will start to become disproportionately large in a way that it hasn't been over the past few years. So really, you're going to start seeing Chinese production companies uh, become more and more the tool of the Chinese Communist Party just for their survival? I wouldn't say the tool of because I mean, knowing these filmmakers, the, the last like the last thing that most of them would want to be considered as is, would be a tool of the Chinese government, but dependent. Uh, because of the because of the funding challenges that they're facing, um, and and I think that we also see that with a wide variety of other without with, with a wide variety of other companies in China as well. So the you know economic collapse has decreased the room that Chinese firms have to maneuver in vis-a-vis -vis the government. So so we're going to see a lot more propaganda. Um really, I guess, kind of messaging within popular culture production. Yeah. I don't know that we will necessarily see it because I don't know that those films will be distributed globally. Um, 
even popular Chinese films like Wolf Warrior 2 um, that had a kind of very blockbuster friendly style didn't necessarily make a big a big impact outside of China. Um, but one thing that I think we will see is that because of the economic vulnerability that, that China is facing, Chinese firms will have to, for the most part, retrench in their relationship with the government because of the funding and because of the funding and accessibility to the market that the government is able to provide. Um, and I think we would have been seeing a similar trend in the U.S. if the federal government was more engaged in the response. Well, you also mentioned since they're not doing theatrical releases and everything is moving more digital, how would that affect some of the digital releases? Uh, you know, you do have Chinese diaspora in the United States and and elsewhere throughout the world who may have access to this these types of productions. You know, we, when we think of distribution, I think we're thinking in in terms of theaters, but with if things go digital wouldn't that have more potential to be a worldwide distribution? Well, I think that we're already seeing um, in, in the case of TikTok, for example, the expansion of Chinese platforms, Chinese owned platforms in other, in other markets. Now, there's a, a, there's a current debate right now um, and a, a lot of, about what TikTok's actual role is and what type of content moderation they use. Um, they're currently under investigation with the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States. Uh, and there are also discussions about whether or not the, the platform can be on US government phones. It's currently not allowed on DOD phones, for example. Um, so I think that the, the coronavirus has really accelerated a trend, which was already in place, but a trend toward short form digital content and the platformization of our, of our media landscape. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us and letting us know what you're watching for. I think that's kind of the most interesting part of this as we're coming through and hopefully on the other side of the curve here, things seem like they're going to change. And uh, it's, it's nice to have you watching this for us. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here and I really thank you for having me on and stay safe. Let's pause for a few seconds between our guests. Have you been listening to this show for an entire year? Have you listened to 50 episodes of the Need to Know podcast? Then it might be time to leave a review on your podcast distributor. It would be wonderful. It helps us out in the search results. It helps show the Wilson Center is doing nonpartisan work and covering all of these issue areas that you need to know. So if you've enjoyed this, we would love if you would give us a review. You can even do it right now while you're still listening to the show. It won't stop. Give us your honest feedback. And of course, you can always shoot us an email at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. My next guest in this 50th episode look back is Kissinger Institute director Robert Daly, who has joined me a few times on this show. A couple of episodes we looked at Hong Kong, and we also helped us out on the trade episodes that we did back in January. Here's a little bit of what he talked about when we were discussing Hong Kong. So given, our plate for this right, so given, given that the trade war has now become a currency war in addition, mm -hmm. and there's, there are concerns about a slowdown in the global economy and even about an American recession, given that at the same time we are talking about 
having now that we've pulled out of the INF Treaty, putting new intermediate range missiles in Asia, uh, provoking a new arms race with China, given how we are combating them on Huawei, on their influence worldwide, on Confucius Institutes, on Belt and Road, uh, we don't have any real new leverage left. And mm. distrust is so deep uh, that there are no levers that we can pull. At the end of the day for China, this is about stability. This is about sovereignty. America be damned. This right. is this is these are truly core interests. Core interests. Right. Right. Interest as far them. as they're concerned, we shouldn't really care. Right. right. That's right. <laughs> um, this this is like China making pronouncements about say. It's it's, it's not like, Ohio. right. If Ferguson, Missouri demonstrations, right. right? I mean, this is. Yeah, I mean, they, they can say shooting is bad. Look at the American right. gun culture. Look at American racism. Does this make a dent in American policymaking or thinking? Absolutely not. Well, I appreciate it. Robert, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. So, as I've said to all of our guests, the world has changed so much in the last year. The things that we thought would happen in 2020. Uh, some of them have occurred. Some of them have occurred haltingly. Um, I wanted to understand from you what is going on in Hong Kong. This is uh, something I wanted to talk to you about a couple of weeks ago and the COVID-19 situation just kind of overtook events. Now Hong Kong is sort of back in the news cycle here in the United States. So give us a, let us ground truth in what's going on in Hong Kong. Sure. Well, you know, as, as we discussed last time, uh, the demonstrators in Hong Kong, in this round of demonstrations, there have been previous rounds, while they have specific grievances, in the case of the 2019 cycle of demonstrations, it was an extradition, proposed extradition law, it's not just about those specific grievances. They're really battling against something bigger. And although this is a, like everything we discuss on this show, it's a very complicated issue, I think at heart, we've got a fairly simple problem. Uh, and when I say simple, I mean that its constituent parts are simple, not that it's simple to solve. I don't think that we really can solve it. What are we looking at in Hong Kong? One, clearly many people in Hong Kong wish to live freely. As beneficiaries of modernity, they do not want to live at the sufferance, at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party. That's what this is really about at heart. That's number one. Number two, the Chinese Communist Party would rather restrict the freedoms of the people in Hong Kong than live with the complexity, the uncertainty, the sloppy freedom of speech that modernity entails. And that is why China has now quite suddenly decided to force a national security law on Hong Kong uh, in the midst of the coronavirus. And that, that's what has put Hong Kong back in the news. So the Hong Kong people, many of them want to be free. China would rather clamp down uh, and have them not be free. That's the simple problem. But then we have a, a third element, which is both simple and I think very frustrating for the United States and for many of your listeners. And that is that the United States and other foreign powers, in truth, can do nothing to stop this. We cannot thwart Beijing as long as Xi Jinping is willing to pay the reputational and financial costs involved in stifling Hong Kong's freedom. And he is willing to pay those costs. And because this is part of China, that really means that American action is, is going to be ineffective. It doesn't mean we shouldn't raise our voices, 
but it's bound to be ineffective. And it's primarily for this reason, that China has pushed a national security law. Some people in Hong Kong, despite the COVID-19 uh, ban on mass gatherings and distancing rules in Hong Kong, they're coming out to protest again. The United States, in concert with some other countries, are we're protesting very strongly, adamantly. We mean it, but it's not going to be effective. I'm reminded, I think, weren't there, wasn't there a push to ban the use of masks in Hong Kong when all the protests were going on a few months ago? Now here we are, masks are ubiquitous again. So Hong Kong is also sort of irony central, right? I mean, one of them is, is what you've described, is that now they can claim that they're wearing masks out of public health concerns rather than to avoid facial recognition technologies. Uh, but this is... It's complicated. You know, the Chinese are very good America watchers. And uh, they're going to be watching what's going on now in Minneapolis and all over the country. And they're go they have heard, you know, the president say, when the looting begins, the shooting begins. And they say, aha, you see, you too have national security laws. You too don't put up with chaos in the street and burning and looting. This is all we're doing. This is all China is doing. You, the United States, together with Australia, the UK, and Canada, you've signed a letter criticizing what China is doing. You're hypocrites. You don't put up with this either. Uh, now, obviously, this isn't a perfect analogy, uh, but it's also obviously not wholly inappropriate, right? They don't not have a point. On May 28th, Secretary of State Pompeo announced a certification of a formal finding by the State Department. This is a certification that he made to Congress. He was required to do this annually under, under a new law that Congress passed. And he said that Hong Kong can no longer be considered sufficiently autonomous from China in the way that it was deemed autonomous when we passed a law in 1992 that set up special trading and other privileges with Hong Kong. So basically the Secretary of State said Hong Kong is, is really not a special administrative region. It's more like the rest of China. That is an enormous step. In my view, uh, the Secretary's determination was correct. Uh, I, think, I think that he made the right move. Uh, and as he said, you, the facts on the ground make this clear. Uh, he's right. The only option that he had to making this declaration was going along with Beijing's fiction. This is business as usual and it's okay. He, he could have acquiesced to Beijing and saying, ah, you know, it's not that big a deal. Everybody needs security when, when it is a big deal. The question now is what does the United States try to do under that certification, knowing that one, it can't change Beijing's mind, and two, any, if any action that it takes that has an impact on Beijing will probably have a negative impact on the economy and therefore the people of Hong Kong as well. So we're stuck, as we often are, with something that we feel very strongly about, that we're broadly speaking correct about, but that we don't have any good policies to affect. So do you think that there is a chance, a good chance, a better than even chance that there will be violence in Hong Kong over this? Well, so Hong, people in Hong Kong, uh, you know, there have been pro demonstrations in the past of up to 2 million people in a city of about 7 million. Uh, and we know that many people who haven't been demonstrating were sympathetic to large-scale peaceful protests and to the cause. The turn toward uh, violence of some protesters, um, by which we mean mostly property destruction, uh, some violence against persons, but mostly not. You've had a, 
more violence of police against protesters than vice versa. That turns some people off. You've also got a lot of people in Hong Kong who are hesitant to come out into the street during the COVID-19 period. Hong Kong, you may remember, got hit very hard in 2003 by SARS. Um, there were a lot of deaths down there, so they're hesitant to do it for that reason. Also, this new national security law that China is going to enact, together with recent comments by the People's Liberation Army about defending the motherland, and together with uh, another new law, which is going to allow Chinese security uh, agencies, the Guanpu, the, the Ministry of State Security, uh, they're actually for the first time going to be setting up shop overtly in Hong Kong. I think this is going to cow a lot of people. A lot of people are going to think, you know what, we've had space for that before, we don't now. Uh, the risks are too high. I, I hesitate to predict, I'm not there on the ground. So, but what I think is probably the most likely is that a lot of folks will be afraid to come out either because of the disease or because they think correctly that China's not gonna put up with this anymore. The group that does dare to come out by definition is gonna be the gutsiest group and perhaps the group that is most prone toward property destruction and throwing Molotov cocktails, that will further alienate more moderate Hong Kongers who originally agreed with them. It will also make them easier to round up because there are fewer of them. And it will aid the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party that the demonstrators are all foreign manipulated terrorists, uh, which is not true. So this comes back to something I think we discussed in our previous session, China holds all the cards. They really do. Frustrating as that is, and I share the frustration of many Americans in the administration, the members of Congress who say, this is awful, can't we do something? We can't always do something. We don't have to aid and abet and help China to camouflage. Uh, but in this case, we, if Beijing is willing to pay the price, again, reputational and financial, for a clampdown on Hong Kong that is really the sign that Hong Kong is going to become just another city, then there's not much we can do about it. So I guess what's the end game here? If the United States really ultimately can't do anything, it's, it's a domestic situation is what I'm hearing you say. Does China roll in and it's another Tiananmen Square? Um, or is it, a, or is it a slow, or is it a slow burn? So I, I think that it's a slow burn is more likely. Uh, I think that you will see uh, talent and capital fleeing Hong Kong. Uh, most of the people with real capital in Hong Kong hedge their bets a long time ago and can transfer their wealth at the push of a button. Many of the people in Hong Kong already have a foreign passport in their pockets. Canadian, American, whatever else it may be. Uh, very interestingly, uh, the UK has now done what it should have done but didn't do in 1997, which is that they have said that people, 300,000, a little over 300,000 people from Hong Kong hold what's called a British National Overseas or BNO passport. That passport does not make them a UK citizen. What it has meant previously is that without a visa, they could go to the UK and stay there for up to six months. Now they can stay up to 12 months during which they will be given a path to citizenship. So 300,000 people are now, you know, the UK, which has been somewhat more isolationist, this is part of what Brexit is about, uh, is now putting money where its mouth is, right? They, 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 
didn't do this in 97. They were criticized for it. And now they're saying this is not just rhetorical. We're actually going to do something. Is the, are the United States and the UK and Canada going to follow suit? You know, will we make it easier for some people from Hong Kong to come here? Uh, we will certainly be encouraging businesses to repatriate to the United States, uh, or we will, I think, have a strong interest in American businesses that have Asia ed- headquarters in Hong Kong. Uh, they'll be thinking about relocating to Singapore or Seoul or Tokyo, and that's probably something that we'll wish to encourage. So it's helping people get out, but we really can't change what's going on within Well, Robert Daly, your interviews that I've done with you, you've been helping me out several times on the Need to Know podcast. You were part of what has made this last year of episodes great. So thank you so much for for helping us out. Well, it's it's a great show, and I'm really glad to be able to you know reach the audience this show reaches. And of course, it's always very nice to hear your mellifluous baritone as well. So thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that, Robert. Thank you. And my final guest today is Mike Sfrega, who we had a lot of fun with over the last year. Uh, We uh, got to travel with Mike and got to learn a lot about the Arctic, uh, certainly in some of the classes that we do. But one of the fun things was we had him on as a guest. He explained his view of the Arctic and what we needed to watch out for. And at the end of that show, he said we needed to watch out for Greenland. And then sure enough... In this a couple of, I guess, a few weeks, we had uh, the President of the United States talk about possibly buying Greenland, and we got to have Mike back on the show, which was one of our more popular episodes. The Arctic and U.S. foreign policy in the Arctic. And, as I always say at the Wilson Center, since we are a think tank, if we're not thinking, we're tanking, I asked Mike what we needed to look for out on the horizon, and he mentioned Greenland. To me, one of the most interesting, aside from the China-Russia-U.S. relationship, is the issue of Greenland. When you look at a map, Greenland is so geostrategic to the allies, to NATO. Uh, When you look at that map and you think about who would like to have influence in in, uh, Greenland, even though it's part of the kingdom of Denmark, uh, China has tried and will continue to try to invest just like they have invested in the rest of the world. Therefore... And here we are talking about Greenland. So let's talk about Greenland. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Aaron, thanks. And I'm glad we mentioned Greenland. Mike, director of our Polar Institute and Global Risk and Resilience Program. Welcome back to the program. Aaron, thanks for having me. And that's a lot of fun listening to your retrospective and your catch-up as to what we had done in the past. Well, it certainly showed really how you're forward-facing on so many of these issues to really, I mean, pull Greenland, what to me as a lay member watching, uh, just to pull Greenland out of the air like that, and then to suddenly see Greenland on the front pages, which it never is. Uh, We finally got to uh, really show how the Wilson Center really does look at these issues so well. Um, so we have, uh, really in the last year, uh, we, we've, I think seen a lot more Arctic issues coming to the fore. 
people realizing that China has an interest in the Arctic. Obviously, Russia is an Arctic nation, and they have an interest in the Arctic. Um, you have the United States showing more interest in the Arctic. And now, with the COVID-19 situation, does that map change? And what do you see coming from the next year in Arctic relations? Well, I don't think the map changes. I think there's been a couple of things that have uh, changed, however. Uh, the spotlight uh, and the importance of the Arctic, I think, has peaked through a lot of other issues going on going on globally. Uh, certainly, Russia's expansion of their economic engine in the Arctic, the Northern Sea Route, has grabbed everyone's attention. Uh, even though oil prices are way down, the, the facilities, the large facilities they have built – has certainly got the U.S. attention and global markets attention. The amount of money China has put into their relationship, uh, which is transactional with the Russian Federation, is substantial. Tens of billions of dollars all around oil and gas development. Uh, the shrinking of the ice cap and the increase of destinational shipping along the sea route has northern sea route has captured everyone's imagination uh, and concern. COVID has put a spotlight. It has amplified the things that are good about the North and the things that are of uh, concern in the North. So the map hasn't changed. I think it has intensified and people have seen how the North, the Arctic is now truly into the bigger geopolitics that are going on. You can't separate China's interest in the Arctic with their interests in Africa. You just can't. Uh, nor can you disassociate the North American Arctic, the U.S. Arctic, from U.S. foreign policy. You just can't. Uh, and if nothing has hit home, it's been this COVID-19, which has brought everyone together and torn us apart a little bit more. And in terms of the North, it certainly has teased out the very issues that you and I have talked about, but on a much bigger scale. Uh, the lack of infrastructure in the North, the unreliable, as we're witnessing between you and me as I speak to you from Alaska – uh, we rely on satellite technology, uh, not hardwired uh, technology that that, uh, that America has. And so, you know, the latency, the lack of infrastructure that we've all talked about really was amplified, is amplified during this pandemic because the Internet is not reliable. There isn't the good Internet backbone and fiber to all places in the Arctic. Um, issues related to water and food security in the Arctic has been – uh, highlighted because when the rest of the world is told to make sure you wash your hands all the time, well, a lot of villages in Alaska and throughout the United States, uh, throughout the rest of the Arctic, well, they don't have accessible running water. So that that's really highlighted some inequity. Looking at the future Arctic, and we talked about the future of different economic engines, tourism was seen to be and will be again a significant economic engine for many Arctic nations. Well, the cruise industry has completely shut down, which has devastated communities throughout the North. So all of these things, uh, the map hasn't changed. It's probably, uh, as a geographer, I'll just say it's probably in sh sharper relief how important the North is, how integrated the North is, uh, and how interlinked all of our issues are throughout the North, including the geopolitics, which is why Greenland was so interesting uh, for a number of years, but really has taken a front seat in the global, you know, in our broader geopolitics now. So I want to ask you about Greenland and what 
is the latest on that. I know that uh, the Kingdom of Denmark had been letting them kind of move forward on exploring how to maybe become independent. Um, and then that really came to the fore with the president's comments about possibly buying Greenland. Really, uh, the, the people of Greenland were, were not for sale. And in fact, we want to not be attached to the kingdom we're currently attached to. So what's the what's been the shakeout from that? So, yeah, it's, it's a really good lead in. Well, it's still the King of Denmark and the government of Greenland still working together on what the future of Greenland will be. There, uh, there is a committee put together in Greenland looking at independence and, and a constitution that's been um, amalgamated now amongst the leadership. Uh, we continue with our efforts at the Wilson in something called the Greenland Dialogues, distilling down 12 to 14 different themes and ideas. Uh, as we had done over the past couple of years, we'll continue in the future to tease out the different issues that Greenland will go through. So they're looking at, yes, the a constitution and you know path of dependence. That's totally linked to their economic development portfolio that they're trying to put together a lot around natural resources, mineral extraction, their fisheries, their aspirations to be a uh, expedition tourism hub. So that goes hand in hand. Uh, the Kingdom of Denmark and the United States have redoubled efforts to invest in Greenland. That is uh, not just for Greenland, but also in frank politics and raw politics, a counter to China's interests in investing in the Arctic, in Greenland. Uh, so all of those things are happening concurrently. Uh, they still move forward with their desires. You know, Greenland is not monolithic. There are still different voices that would like to approach this differently. But the, but the process continues with the support of the Kingdom of Denmark. I will also say that in the last month or so, several high-ranking U.S. officials have come out to talk about how important Greenland is to the United States, to NATO, and fellow allies and countries that think alike. Uh, we have a new consulate that will open this summer in Nuke. It will be reopened. It was uh, – fully staffed from 1940 to 1953. So a reopening of a U.S. consulate in Nuke is certainly a signal. It's practical and political. Um, we have a, a commitment from the U.S. government for an initial $12.1 million in different investments in Greenland for in education, uh, on and on. Uh, it dwarfs a lot of the other investments that China is doing around the world and certainly in the Arctic, but at least it's a step toward the right, uh, in my opinion, the right kind of a relationship with Greenland through the Kingdom of Denmark. All of this U.S. bilateral, multilateral relationships and dialogue are going through and with the Kingdom of Denmark and the government of Greenland. And those Greenland dialogues, are they like private roundtable discussions or are they public events that are available? They are both. We've held, um, I can't remember, maybe three or four of these very specific co-fashioned uh, with the government of Greenland. Over the course of the last two plus years, there are there are closed door discussions, but a lot of the work we do is in, in public. So on our website, there are recordings of discussions with ministers, uh, with research leaders, government officials, and they range from, you know, where is Greenland today in terms of a government and how you are trying to build infrastructure, whether it's expand the airports or internet connectivity, what's your aspirations economically to the 
issue of independence and constitution. And over the course of the next several months, we'll be planning the next two to three of these Greenland dialogues, which are both private and public as well. So folks who are interested in that can certainly go to our website and find more on Greenland and this uh, constitutional and security issue that's out there. It, and it fits, it fits, Aaron, with the, you know, the, the framework that we've come up with is navigating the Arctic seven seas. I mean, if you take Greenland and you just filter through these seven seas of what we believe to be the seven drivers of the Arctic, I mean, Greenland's got it all. Greenland is emblematic of the New North. I mean, if you're thinking about climate, well, certainly the Greenland ice sheet is a major issue. If you're thinking about commodities, um, rare earth minerals, very important, very important to the world. Greenland is, is a place where you look at that. If you're looking at communities and pressures and opportunities in the north, Greenland, uh, you know, only a, a 55,000 people there, but in a microcosm, it shows you a lot about indigenous communities, indigenous knowledge, and and, and a new wave of social and political uh, needs, interests, and influence. So you could even competition, you can see the, you know, the great competition that everyone talks about globally. Well, there is part of that in the Arctic and a significant amount of cooperation. So you know, e each of our seas, um, to include commerce and, and connectivity and, and others, uh, all play out in this emerging landscape agreement. I want to ask you one final question because obviously, you know, when a year ago when we started this, the idea of a global pandemic was not really on anyone's mind uh, when we talked about foreign affairs. Um, certainly it's always been a possibility, but now it's a reality and, uh, beyond just the, the human toll of sickness, there's also this economic toll. And I wanted to ask you how this is playing out in the North. Uh, we know some countries seem to be doing well at this. Uh, we have had a previous show where we talked to Matt Rajansky about what's going on in Russia. I think the case of Sweden is pretty interesting. Uh, if you could just talk us through some of that really quick and maybe how that could change relationships uh, in Europe and in the Arctic as a whole. What's interesting is that uh, on that one, we held uh, just last week, we held a two day conference uh, via Zoom, five or six hours each day, uh, 10 different panels, 60 speakers, and looked at the impacts of COVID-19 in the Arctic. Fascinating. Depends on which which lens you're looking at the Arctic through. Um, but if you're thinking about, um, if you're looking at the economic impact, a lot of Arctic nations have felt the impact <clears throat> from the tourism industry. That came up over and over and over again. The refocusing eyes and investment opportunities on basic infrastructure. Right. A lot of people in the north can't drive to another village. They can't go to another community. They have to fly there. And when you shut the air industry down, which has happened across the north, you shut down commerce uh, and life links to supplies and fuel on and on and on. So it's a very different, very different um, economic formula in terms of the way in which countries have approached shutdown or no shutdown. We will see very, very different what Sweden has done, uh, which has basically looked at, at the herd immunity model versus what others have done. In the north, a lot of communities, as reported last week, a lot of communities, remote communities, were shutting their communities down from the outside world. They benefited from being remote. However, 
when they do have, when they have had COVID-19 cases, uh, it stresses those communities because they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the hospital beds. And what would that do as it did during previous pandemics? Those tend to wipe out communities. Look what's happening in the Navajo Nation. So there's been this juxtaposition as remote is good, but remote could also be bad. And the absolute need for better roads, better rail, better internet, better connection between all of these communities, north, south, and east, west. That will be an issue going forward for many of us who work in the north. How do we better connect, better integrate, better support uh, northern communities? Well, on our two-year retrospective, we'll be sure to have you back so we can discuss how that goes. And Mike, I really appreciate, one, working with you is always a blast, and uh, what we've been able to collaborate on has really been a pleasure. And I really thank you for helping us out here on the podcast and always being willing to offer your expertise and watching these issues for us. Aaron, thank you, and, and congrats on, on the podcast. That's a, that's a lot of work and a lot of turf, literally and figuratively, to cover. And thank you for you know giving voice to our work. It's It goes both ways, so congratulations. And that's a wrap. 50 episodes in the can. Here's to another 50 more. Thank you all so much for listening. Share with your friends. Please like and subscribe. Please leave a rating for us and a review. And we will see you next time on Need to Know.